Welcome back. This is Ad Hoc. My name is Jack. I'm Jaden. I'm Matthew. Today, we are very happy to present a compelling conversation with Professor Jill Lepore, who is the David Woods Kemper Class of 41 Professor of American History here at our beloved Harvard and a staff writer at The New Yorker. We're all college students, so it's only authentic that we really procrastinated on putting this one out. We spoke to Professor Lepore in November of last year in the immediate aftermath of the midterm elections, where Democrats maintained their majority in the Senate and Republicans snapped up a thin majority in the House. Since we spoke to Professor Lepore in November about democracy on the ballot, amending the Constitution, and a post-Roe world, a few important things have happened that we think we should update you on. Most Importantly, Harvard lost to Professor Lepore's alma mater, Yale, 1914 in the big game, as all three of us looked on in misery and despair. But maybe more practically, uh, Republicans, after their lackluster display in the midterms, have taken an unconventional approach to their postmortem. Kevin McCarthy managed to cram in as many votes for speaker in three days as most politicians see in their entire careers. And the U.S. swore in a Goldman Sachs banker or cross-dresser, campaign fraudster, depends on who you believe, uh, George Santos. But the crux of our conversation about the Constitution and amending has not changed. Spoiler alert, there has not been a 28th Amendment. So please enjoy our conversation, think about the Constitution, and go read about amendments at amendmentsproject.org. privilege of speaking with Professor Jill Lepore. Professor Lepore is a historian and a writer for The New Yorker, where she shines a spotlight on the hidden parts of American history, whether it's voter algorithms in the civil Maddox Corp or true American eccentrics like Joe Gould. Professor Lepore studied a, a trio of schools that go with the color blue. You get your BA in English at Tufts, go Jumbos, a master's from the University of Michigan, go blue, and then you were a doctorate in American studies from a school in New Haven that we don't talk about too much on this podcast. <laughs> Big football game coming up. But we're so happy that you saw the light. You've been with, with us here at Harvard since 2003. And Professor LaFleur, I had the pleasure of watching some of your lectures last year, and we're very excited to hear what you have to say about this crumbling, interesting country that is the United States. So Professor LaFleur, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. It's really fun to be here. I never actually noticed that about the three blues. <laughs> that's a whole new whole new thing to mull over. The more you know. Yeah. That's right. Well, we, we feel a certain connection definitely to the two, two experts. <laughs> but, Professor, we want to start with what happened yesterday as we sit here in your office. We're coming off the heels of a major election. In our lifetimes, at least many would say, the biggest midterm elections that we've seen. And I just want to pick out I like to follow big headlines, and the biggest one that I feel like I saw in the few weeks leading up to this election was democracy is on the ballot. I saw a political headline with President Obama in Arizona last week saying democracy may not survive in Arizona if Republicans won statewide office. And then we had Tony Ebers, a usually pretty mild-mannered politician in Wisconsin, basically arguing that his re-election last night was a win for democracy in the state of Wisconsin. And he also used the phrase jazzed as hell in his victory speech. So I'm just hoping we have more of his type of 
politician after these type of midterms. But on the whole, I'm just hoping for a temperature check from your view. Was democracy on the ballot yesterday? Should we be relieved that election deniers, as the phrase has been used on the whole, didn't win in a Republican wave? How are you feeling about the state of our democracy? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy about the results and surprised as everyone else is, but the results of uh, the election yesterday, not all the results are in as we're speaking here um, midday on the day after. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm not a, I'm like, presumably, <laughs> guys, I'm not a political junkie. Like I didn't watch the returns all night. <laughs> I was prepping for class. I attend the se- seminar this afternoon. Um, and I will confess that I, this is a contrarian position uh, on the left, but I do not love the rhetoric of democracy being on the ballot. I think it's inflammatory and incendiary, and I want people to be turning down the temperature, not turning it up. You know, whether that's what worked for Democrats in these midterms is, I think, debatable. I think the kind of abortion is on the ballot, which was actually in some states that were voting for referendums on constitutional amendments regarding abortion. Abortion was, in fact, on the ballot. And I think that when we maybe look back at this election, I'd be curious to know whether that isn't really what swung a lot of the surprising returns. Um, Is democracy in crisis in the United States and around the world? For sure. And that has many different sources beyond the cast of clowns who were on the ballot (laughs) Um, on the Republican side of the ticket in in, in many state elections. That is, there's bigger, deeper concerns about constitutional democracy that are worth thinking about. And I think our ability to think about them clearly is somewhat impeded by the political consultants who sit around a table and say, hey, you know what's tell everybody to stay on message? Democracy is on the ballot. I, I just don't think that's I just don't think that's good for the country. Yeah. Class of Clowns isn't one that I've heard before about this election cycle, but maybe that would have been more effective in the fundraising <laughs> text that we get. And yeah. <laughs> democracy is on the ballot. Well, you mentioned state amendments. We're we're very interested to see Kentucky voting on abortion and, and Kansas earlier this year. We also we want to talk about national amendments also, because we know you've been working on the Amend Project, and you've been classifying and analyzing the text of all these attempts to revise the U.S. Constitution, and I pulled this phrase from the website, I really liked it, to recover this tradition of constitutional tinkering. It seems like we, we don't tinker a lot with the Constitution, we argue about it, it seems, read about it, maybe some of us, but definitely not tinker. Um, but the website is really interesting, really recommend anyone listening take a look at it as plethora of interesting amendment proposals throughout the years, but as you know, most of them don't ever get there. I, I want to highlight one really funny one that you've mentioned before. There was this 1893 amendment to rename this country the United States of the Earth, which I think is pretty on brand for Americans. Yeah. On the, <laughs> the center of everything. Mm-hmm. But I think beyond being funny, maybe it shows that maybe it should be a little bit a little bit difficult to amend the Constitution because they're crazy Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, but it but so I'm not a policymaker. Um, I'm not a politician. I'm a historian. But I think it's actually, uh, and certainly not the first person to surface that proposal. It's quite interesting 
proposed amendment at a time of the height of American imperial America's imperial reach, right? So right around the time of the, the, the Spanish American War, American engagement in Cuba, the sort of the brutal, violent conquest of Plains Indian warfare has just come to a close. There's a sense not only of continental destiny, but of a Pacific destiny for the United States. So, and I've actually not looked into the context in which that's proposed, whether it is an indictment of imperialism or actually an imperialist proposal, like whether it's meant satirically or not. Um, But I think there's a lot to be gained by studying the history of efforts to change the consciousness, which we don't tend to think about. We tend to accept as inevitable um, in our day, sort of in my lifetime, it has become effectively impossible to amend the U.S. Constitution. And instead, when people want to make constitutional change, they go to the Supreme Court and ask Constitution, ask that the Constitution be read differently. And that's been extremely effective, especially um, for liberals mid-century and sort of under the Warren Court. Say, it's in the court that the uh, the, uh, the Americans have today. We might see and are beginning to see strong conservative interpretations. So um, the kind of reification of uh, individual rights reading of the Second Amendment is a form of constitutional change. It's not a new amendment, but in a sense, it is a new amendment. That's not how the amendment had been read um, before 2008, really, certainly before the 1980s. So I'm working on this project with a team of unbelievable undergraduate researchers because I'm, I'm Curious to sort of just pull together and actually take a look at what are the other people have tried to do since 1787, besides going to the Supreme Court. And you talk about double supermajority. I also I just want to bring up when I read about that, read the details of Article Five, I couldn't help but think of the filibuster, just as yep. another you know, yep. supermajority requirement. But the filibuster, at least from my knowledge historically, was almost an accident. It's a mention, whereas Article Five, the carefully crafted, it seems, when the Constitution was being made. So you touched on this a little bit with the judiciary and how it's evolved, but can you just try to elucidate for us, what were the founders thinking setting such a high bar to pass an amendment? Yeah, yeah. So that is a, it's, a, it's an interesting comparison with the filibuster, but as you say, the filibuster is not constitutional. It's not in the Constitution. It's a tradition, which is you know why it's frustrating to see its continuity, since its, its origins are not a, a bright spot in American history, right? They have to do um, with the defiance of, uh, of abolitionists. Article 5's double supermajority requirement is constitutional. It is written in the original draft of the Constitution, and like the supermajority requirement for impeachment, which we also can no longer do, right? You, just, you can't get two-thirds of the Senate to do very much of anything. <laughs> um, what's interesting about both is... Uh, well, impeachment, you could say, was intended that it would be as difficult as a treaty, right, um, a ratification of a treaty. But Article 5, so the, the framers did not expect there would be political parties. There weren't political parties at the time they drafted the Constitution. There were the political divisions. But they also thought they were designing a Constitution that would preclude the emergence of political parties. And so... When you think about what it is to say, you know, it has to pass both both um, branches of the legislature by a two-thirds majority and then go to the states and be ratified by three-quarters of the, of the states, that doesn't look that crazy if there are no parties. I mean, that is, it, doesn't look, it certainly doesn't look impossible, right? Um, so 
there's first of all that. So just on the face of that evidence alone, you would say they expected it to be easier than it has become. But then you compound that, not just with a party system, which is to say there are two stable interest groups that, that, that differ from one another and vie for power and, and have to come up with power sharing means, but polarized political parties, which you know are two parties that have moved to the poles of the political spectrum, then it's impossible to do anything that, that is that has that double supermajority requirement. So, right, it's not meant to be as difficult as it has become. It was meant to be difficult. There's just no two ways about it. But the problem is the only way to fix the Constitution is with Article 5, and Article 5 can't work because of the thing that's broken with our democracy. Yeah. I think that's what I was thinking, but the filibuster, at least. You know, all of us will look at Joe Manchin because you can't get rid of the filibuster without Joe Manchin and you can't get rid of the filibuster without using a system that many would say is broken. So it's just interesting how these systems can come. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's so interesting to think kind of generationally, like I might say there's times when I've seen the U S government in terms of demanding the economy or guaranteeing rights or whatever other things the federal government does or, uh, per, you know, providing services has worked effectively. But in your lifetime, your lifetime yeah. like the works are just gummed up. So I don't, you know, like it's hard. I, I get why you're like, but why should we hold on to any of that? Like, let's just start again. Uh, yeah. Where's the significant legislation we can think of? But we're, we're not going to make you propose a better system here. You know, as you said, you're not a policymaker. It's a difficult problem for anyone to tackle. But just for thought purposes, play devil's advocate. Maybe we'll argue for one proposal that we don't think you like, which is nationwide referendum. Put it to the people on how to change the Constitution. We don't have anything particularly close to that. But in other countries, it's not a crazy idea that they vote on pretty major changes, whether it be constitutional convention. We saw that in Chile relatively recently. Legalized abortion. We saw it in Ireland. And in the U.S., we do at least care about what surveys say, when it, especially on the Democratic side. We point to the Electoral College. We point to abortion. We point to gun control as areas where we think we have a majority. So why not, in the U.S., put it to the voters? And, and your proposal is a simple majority, 50 point whatever percent. Yeah, put it to the voters. See, when it comes to something like legalizing abortion, would you approve a constitutional amendment? Uh, or a Hillary Clinton presidency? <laughs> or abolish the Electoral College? Yeah, abolishing the Electoral that. College, we'll, we'll probably agree. Open up a whole can. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, it's a re- I think it's a very interesting question, and I wish it were a live one. Right? I wish we could be asking, how do we think constitutional change should happen? Let's discuss it. Let's genuinely think about how to engage the citizenry in a deliberation over that question. Um, But it's, so it's not. So this is all hypothetical. My hesitation um, has to do with a few factors. One of which is um, Zach Elkins, who's a political scientist at the University of Texas, Austin, who I've collaborated with a lot on this project He's done some studies and other people have done studies of the referendum process where um, going in and sort of, you know, people vote and then you ask them how they voted and then you ask them what they think they voted for. People don't often 
vote in a way that aligns with what they were hoping to support, yeah. right? If you, I don't know if you guys, you know, presumably voted by absentee or voted in Massachusetts. You know, I wanted to vote yesterday. I voted in person. There were, I think, five uh, initiatives yeah. to vote on in Massachusetts. Yeah. And, um, you know, okay, so tax, uh, raise taxes on people with an income more than a million dollars. I can understand that. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um the dentistry, the one. dentistry one. What was that? I I, I hadn't even read the like the, this one about I don't know how to regulate the services that dentists say they will provide. Or assumes a lot of knowledge. Made, it, it made it, no sense. It was really hard to parse the language. There was one a few years ago that was about nurses, um, whether nurses should have minimum breaks between shift times or something. And I and I remember having seen ads on television. With featuring nurses saying vote yes on two and vote no on two and I, I just couldn't parse it and I'm you know I'm 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 doing due diligence. <laughs> yeah. I had to skip the dentistry yeah. one. I just couldn't understand it. And so Zach's research is like the thing is like if you were sure people's preferences were being expressed in the in the box they marked on their ballot, we'd be I would be more comfortable with more referendums. <laughs> So sh- short of full-on referendum, referenda, though, are there sort of more majoritarian ways that you would support enacting policy compared to the status quo of us being pretty constrained by a Supreme Court, pretty constrained by a constitution? I mean, I- I'm from Canada, and in Canada, provinces can actually pass legislation that violates certain elements of our charter rights and freedoms mm-hmm. if they're in the support of the majority. So I'm just wondering, obviously the line for majoritarianism and constitutional protections needs to be, needs to be drawn somewhere. Have we drawn it in the right place? Um, even if the alternative is not referenda, yeah. is it more legislative? Yeah. Yeah. No, right. So that's a really good point. So we haven't drawn it in the right place. It was maybe one time in the right place. It, right. You know, the place has moved, right? Um, I don't think it's the right place. I'm not persuaded that national popular referendum is the right place. Fair. There are proposals on the table which are really interesting, none of which can be really implemented, obviously, because they would all require an amendment. But here are some. Um, one one is um, there's a progressive proposal. I'm not going to get the details right. That lowers this, the majority requirements to, from two thirds to three fifths. Yeah, yeah, which is already a help, and and yeah. also in the in the and lowers from three quarters to two thirds of the states, but also has a different ratification bar. That there are two there would be two paths to ratification. So let's say Congress passes whatever, environmental protection amendment yep. by a three-fifths majority Another of both EPA, houses, right? Pretty yeah. Uh, yeah, or environmental rights amendment, we could call it. Another ERA. <laughs> um, and it it could go to the state legislatures, but if it doesn't meet this bar of three-fifths of the states, there would be two alternative ways to try. One would be a national popular referendum for ratification, which is different than, you know, w- without having to go through a deliberative body first. And another is um, a weighted ratification where the more populous states get more votes towards that three-fifths majority, right? So that it has some, um, there's some relationship to a popular vote, but is nevertheless faithful to some notion of federalism. There is also, there's a method of Article 5 constitutional amendment that has never been used before, which is for the state legislatures to call a convention to deliberate on proposed amendments. And there are conservatives 
who believe that this has actually already passed enough states, which would be 34, I think, states have to pass that, and that there could be, therefore, a second constitutional convention. Whether it would be bound to deliberate over just a, a single amendment or a set of amendments that all the legislatures who supported it uh, want to propose, or whether it could be what liberals like to call a runaway convention, which is what the 1787 convention was, is something that people debate about a lot. It, it, there has not been a lot of uh, support from the left for the idea of holding such a convention, uh, although there are notable people, including here at Harvard, Lawrence Lessig at the law school is a big proponent of an Article 5 convention. Um, it looked, I think, to a lot of people, if Republicans had won the way they were expected to win um, in the 2022 midterms, that there would be more state legislatures inclined to support that and that we would actually be looking at the possibility of a real convention. Yeah. Uh, but that seems less likely now than it did. And wouldn't that should be the most ruckus political month of our time? It would be crazy. There were actually um, three states that had on their ballots this year holding a state constitutional convention. For, for many states, it's just a, a scheduled thing, like every 10 years you have to put it to the voters, should we revise the constitution at a constitutional convention? Um, and the two I looked at this morning were Missouri and Alaska, and both measures were defeated 70-30. <laughs> So people don't seem to have that appetite for convening right now. Something to watch, maybe. We'll see. I do I do want to talk a little bit about the Dobbs case and Roe and originalism. I think we're especially concerned with originalism as you've been concerned. First of all, we're concerned, is originalism a cover for deeper political beliefs? It's a pretty bold question. Maybe it's not bold, but... I'm in a class, for example, where we're learning about the rise of the Federal Society in the 70s and the 80s and how there's visible links between people who are in the Federal Society, people who are writing articles in law journals, prominent law journals, about how we should really be looking at what the founders intended with every word of the Constitution. So as Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, intently focused on how the Constitution doesn't mention abortion, women, or slaves, many other things. How concerned should we be that deeper ulterior political motives of six men, the Supreme Court, or six justices on the right side are driving a legal and political shift? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say several things on this score. First of all, it, originalism is terrible history. Like, as it, to... To confine your investigation of, of ideas from the past to, you know, five particular documents and disavow all other historical evidence as relevant is, is, is just an inexcusably bad historical method. So I think it's important, first of all, just to say it's, it, it's not actually historical investigation. Um, it's, it's much more, it's much closer to, say, a search for precedent, right? Like, you want to do this and you need to say this has been done before, right? And it's going to support you know, the, the argument you're going to make in court defending your um, client, which is a kind of historical investigation, but it's, it's, it's not historical inquiry, right? And it's not genuine inquiry. It's searching for evidence to support your position. That is generally how lawyers think. When they look at evidence, they're looking to support a position that they have taken and are an advocate for in a public sense. Um, 
So originalism emerges out of that sensibility, right? The historical record exists for us to find evidence that supports what we already believe. Is it a conspiracy of conservatives to pretend that they have neutrality when really they're engaging as advocates? No, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's quite clear what they I don't actually, like, I think, like, there is a, um, a set of ideas behind that as a mode of jurisprudence, right? You can defend that as a mode of jurisprudence. You can say, you know what, this is better than the alternative. I think this is fair. You could even say, and this was the thing that Scalia always said, this was the most democratic way to interpret the Constitution. I think that's completely bonkers, but you can say it, and I don't think, um, and, and we can argue about it. I don't think it's necessary to demonize it, yeah. right? Like, I, I think it is a, it's a, it's a strenuous intellectual argument that was made by some incredibly smart people starting in the early 1970s. Like, it goes back, as you, you know, that federal site is like 1982 or 1986 or something. But the movement toward a kind of very smart, long game that conservative legal thinkers played, which is a kind of judicial analogy to the long game that pro-life grassroots activists were playing was we have to take control of constitutional interpretation. And here's here are some different ways we can do that. Right? We'll pursue these multiple tracks. Um, am I worried about it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Do I think that there's room for um, intellectual arguments to be used to defeat it in addition to political activism? Absolutely. Do you think it was remotely possible to save Roe with a majority of the Supreme Court adhering to some kind of originalist thinking, or was it doomed? Based no, on I think there was a lot of thought that um, Roberts would manage to pull out of his hat a more mm -hmm. limited opinion. Yeah. I'm not a big, I'm really not a big pork watcher, and I, I don't have a, you know, like, it's not. So I, 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 I honestly think that could have gone a, di gone a different way. Um, and you know, as what you guys have observed coming of age when you've come of, of age, the constitution of the court could have gone a different way. Do you know what I mean? Like, we, we could have had, merit, you know, like, if, if RBG had stepped down in 2015 or yeah. 2014, if Merrick Garland had also gotten it, like, it'd be a really different court. It isn't about raw political power. It's, in this case, it's largely about political chicanery. Um which is, which is, I think, what makes it so hard to swallow, right? Like, this is a, a half-century-long constitutional right that has been taken away through a series of what feel to many Americans like political swindles. But I think it's nevertheless, I will kind of pull myself back from the precipice of calling it a swindle because I think to engage in the language of, like, Stop the swindle is is stop, really stop, no I, I just think, I just think, right I'm giving you like a like a slightly yeah. different like I just think that's dangerous like it's politics it's a game they played the game they played up they they really play rough you know so it's I think it's important not to depict that that outcome as much as I bemoan it as illegitimate. All right. I want to enter a quick rapid fire round. So I'm just going to say a few statements and you just let us know if you agree or disagree. Okay. Quick answers. Um, all right. Cool. Let's go. Pineapple belongs on pizza. Yes. 
already over one. <laughs> Elon Musk acquisition of Twitter is good for politics. No. <laughs> there you go. One, two. Puerto Rico should be granted statehood. Yes. The Electoral College will be abolished in our lifetime. Yes. Attacking the court is a good idea? No. Nope. All right. And the last one, I'll give you more than just a little bit of a yes or no. This one is close to home, obviously. Um, Harvard is involved in a big court case right now in the Supreme Court over affirmative action. Do you think we're going to see affirmative action abolished? Uh, yes, I, I do. I do think that's quite likely. Well, we could talk about originalism in the Supreme Court for, for hours on end, I'm sure. But we're so happy that you came on to the podcast, Professor LaCour. And we'll be watching for what you do with amendments. And maybe we'll see the 28th Amendment before this podcast. <laughs> you can Spotify or Spotify, <laughs> whatever century that is. So thanks so much. For All right. Thanks, you guys. A lot of fun. Peace.